Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right. Our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You better line up and rush on over there, because it's a great chat room. So, Rav, tell us all about it. It's a great chat room, but we do a good job getting everyone um, in there and getting them comfortable and joining the conversation. Um, As I said, there are some people that come and just observe what we do, and I kind of see them on the periphery, and there are other people that come in and really contribute, but... Well, however you prefer to do it, you'll definitely benefit from being there because we get some really good information coming through there. So do come join us, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, it looks like you've got all the procrastinators in the chat room today. <laughs> They're claiming to be the champions of yeah. procrastination. Well, that's what our show is about. So why not? Okay, in this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss spirituality and the brain. I posted a new study last week on my Facebook page regarding spiritual retreats. The article's title tells us that spiritual retreats change feel-good chemical systems in the brain. Now, that should come as no surprise to those of you who follow my post or catch our shows here on Provocative Enlightenment. I have shared several conversations that I've enjoyed with researchers covering varying brain changes that occur as a result of meditation and other spiritual practices. Indeed, the author of the article I posted, Dr. Andrew Newberg, and I have discussed exactly that on multiple occasions, including on this show. He has repeatedly found that brain chemistry is altered during meditation and other spiritual practices. In the publication, Religion, Brain, and Behavior, Newberg made this statement, quote, Since serotonin and dopamine are part of the reward and emotional systems of the brain, it helps us understand why these spiritual practices result in powerful, positive emotional experiences. Close quote. Now, almost immediately, a friend commented on my post with this remark. I'm all in for this. I still question the definition of spiritual. Dopamine and serotonin are not spiritual. I think we frequently mistake deeply emotional states for being some out-of-body thing. All right, my friend's point is an interesting one. I remember when another friend went through a period in her life where her thyroid was acting up. Thyroid problems can cause what sometimes is referred to as thyroid madness. Indeed, low thyroid hormones and the common occurrence of sluggish, poorly functional adrenals can play a role in a variety of emotional and behavioral symptoms and disturbances, including anxiety, excessive fear, mood swings like bipolar, rage, irritability, confusion, dementia, obsessive-compulsive disorders, and mental aberrations. What worried this friend most, however, seemed to be her inability to make her usual spiritual connection. Chemistry? Chemistry is chemistry, and we must be ready and willing to admit this, but it sometimes can become a sort of chicken-and-the-egg dilemma. As I explained to my friend on Facebook, we know, for example, that meditation can alter activity in the parietal lobe. This leads to a sense of oneness, since the parietal lobe is the area of the brain that functions to receive and process sensory information from all over the body. Diminish the activity there, and the sense of one melts into a oneness feeling. So the real question comes down to this. Were we designed by a grand organizing designer, a god? in such a way that we could and likely would discover a spiritual connection, designed in such a manner that we could come to know 
that we are much more than the Darwinian meat machine that materialists make us out to be. Now, some argue that it is evolution that made us this way, but that in and of itself is only a best guess from what I believe can be a biased position. But then we all have our biased positions. Nevertheless, you must decide for yourself what you will believe. For me, my life has confirmed that there is much more to life than the materialist is willing to admit, and consequently, I come down to this conclusion. You are hardwired for spirituality. That would suggest that you must teach yourself to become an atheist. There can be many motives for this, but it doesn't alter the fact that, once again, you are simply hardwired for a spiritual experience. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, I can certainly relate to the story said about the friend with the thyroid issues, because, you know, I remember when I was on bioidentical hormones for a while, that gave my own feeling of spiritual connectedness a huge boost. It was like it, it had faded away. I wasn't even aware that it had faded, but then I went on the hormone therapy and uh, yeah it's like every day I, I just felt very connected and I felt like yeah I just felt like I had access to information that I wouldn't normally have in a non-spiritual state if that makes any sense to you but it was it was a definite experience so I mean there is chemistry to it all and then of course just uh, the amount of research that has been done on meditation and relaxing and all that I mean it has so many other positive benefits to your health and your well-being and your psychological health it's uh, it's definitely all worth exploring more of it it feels good it feels good. It feels good. Right. Well, that sums it up, doesn't it? It just well, <laughs> makes life more worthwhile. It feels good. Now, I suppose, right. in, in all fairness, you should point out that not everybody that that takes on some forms of spiritual exercise, you know, has a positive experience. And Buddhists talk very much about um, dark meditations that, you know, uh, really have a lasting impact. So... Um, feel good. Whenever I've whenever I've tried it with myself, whenever I've tried to get into a spiritual state, when I've done meditation type exercises, they have always felt good. But I certainly remember as a child, um, yeah, sometimes some things were kind of scary. You didn't want to <laughs> look outside yourself very much. Well, okay, one way or another, it's chemistry. Uh, brain activity. We cannot separate that from the spiritual aspect of the experience itself. And so, again, we have that question. Are we hardwired that way for a reason? Or, you know, is, I mean, hardwired that way for a reason that is otherworldly? Or are we hardwired that way for a reason that is evolutionary? You decide. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Larry Rosen, and we discussed his book, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. And he wrote, thanks for the show. I haven't known how to guide my children regarding gaming. The professor's guidance was very valuable to me. Elizabeth wrote, I often wonder why people would join each other for a meal and then text instead of speak. Mark commented, I wonder if people who use their phone too much are losing their ability to focus, especially keeping their mind on the road or in the concrete reality. Focusing is fundamental to the exercise of free will. Very well said, Mark, and in today's world, absolutely necessary. Moving on, Billy wrote, I used your stop smoking program and later challenged my very skeptical best friend to do the same. After three months of using it only while he slept, he stopped smoking for good. Hans wrote this about our Echophone and Intertalk combined technology. First effect is memorable, vivid dreaming. Residual effect is awareness of inner unconscious content and tone of information, thought, emotions. My perception of inner world has changed and my love of truth remains. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, 
at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle with author Professor Timothy Pitchell. Dr. Pitchell is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology, the director of the Center for Initiatives in Education, Carleton University, Canada, and he has a cross-appointment to the School of Linguistics and Language Studies. He is the founder of the Procrastination Research Group, and over the past 20 years, their exclusive focus has been on researching the breakdown in volitional action, commonly known as procrastination, and its relationship to personal well-being. The goal is to understand why we become our own worst enemy at times with needless voluntary delay. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Timothy Pitchell. Thanks, Elvin. Please feel free to call me Tim. It's good to have you, sir. I, I've been looking forward to the show, and I loved your book. It's, it's a great read. Uh, we like to know three things uh, on this show. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin with you, if we can. Tell us about yourself and how and why you became focused on procrastination. Well, I was uh, studying goal pursuit in my own graduate studies, and I did doctoral work around goal pursuit and how it made us feel. So I was interested in our own personal projects or goals. And as I studied those, and particularly when I interviewed people, what I came to realize it was the things we said we were going to do and we didn't do that really predicted our well-being. As you might guess, it predicted that we were more unhappy, more dissatisfied with life. So quite literally, when I defended that Ph.D. back in 95, my external examiner asked me, what's next, Tim? I said, I'm going to stop studying people's goal pursuit, start studying what they say they're going to do and never do, because that's where I think a lot of our understanding of our own well-being lies. Interesting. Let's let's do this. Let's let's start from the very beginning. Define for us exactly what procrastination is in your view. Well, that's an important question. So there's many forms of delay. In fact, we've had to delay this interview a couple of times, and none of it was procrastination. It was very purposeful delay, sometimes inevitable delay. My father had died last fall. I've been dealing with his estate and traveling. So the the first thing to start with is that while all procrastination is delay. Not all delay is procrastination. Procrastination is a particular form of delay. It's a voluntary delay, in the sense that nothing is getting in the way. So, for example, I may have had to cancel again today had one of my children been sick or something had happened to my car on the way home, an inevitable delay. But this is a voluntary delay. There's nothing getting in the way except for me. I have an intended act. So I had intended to do something because I thought this was the time to act, all things considered. And the final part of the de- definition, voluntary delay of an intended act, despite the recognition that we're probably going to be worse off for the delay. And I say probably because it's not a perfect world, and we all know times when we have truly procrastinated and actually paid off. And we, we hold on to those like gold to justify later needless delay. A colleague at Utrecht University in the Netherlands recently coined it in a very nice phrase, culpably unwarranted delay. So we're actually culpable for this delay because it is unwarranted and a reasonable person would act otherwise. And the last piece I would add to that definition is that the Greeks referred to it as akrasia. It's doing something against our own best interest. So that taken together, I think you get the flavor of procrastination is a pretty nasty form of delay. And I hope it gets rid of the question of, is there any upside to procrastination? Because I think you can see when we define it this way, the answer is no. Right. That's very good. Excellent definition. Uh, you use some self-appraisal instruments to determine how people rate themselves on procrastination. Have you found any correlations between those that rated themselves high or low uh, with behavior patterns, including achievement or success? And if so, flesh that out for us. Will you please, Professor? That's a great question, Alden. Um, because that's typically where we start. We say, well, so what are the effects of procrastination? And overall, across uh, a great number of studies done in a meta-analysis where we look at studies together, we see that overall procrastination is never helpful. There's a, a, a negative correlation between procrastination and achievement. We typically do worse. Now, again, that's in the aggregate. There are some people who, and I meet them as students because they're quite fascinated by their own behavior, they still seem to achieve 
but they just hate the way they're working. But overall, the correlation, as you asked specifically, the correlation is negative. As our procrastination goes up, our achievement goes down. But there are other more problematic outcomes than just our achievement. In fact, our most recent research and our most recent book was on health and well-being and procrastination. And we were quite surprised to learn that procrastination is related to poorer health. It's related to poorer health because of increased stress. It's related to poorer health because of the indirect effects of fewer wellness behaviors. So less exercise, eating more poorly, not sleeping as well. And finally, it's related to poorer health because of treatment delay. Oh, I'll get looked at that looked at later. So on the one hand, you started in a great place with achievement, but I'd also want to take on the notion of, well, it really affects our health and our well-being. That's where my story started, that uh, our, our life satisfaction goes uh, down, our happiness and our feelings of, of well-being uh, decrease. And on top of that, it undermines our relationships in important ways because so many people think, well, you know, procrastination, it's just my problem. It's just a question of a few all-nighters. But in fact, you end up breaking a lot of social contracts with people. You, you, um, you're too busy now. You can't do this. You can't do that. And then when something goes wrong, it becomes stress for everyone. It's a national emergency. So I started by answering your first question, but I added a bit more to say there's the pattern of relations between procrastination and outcome variables is very negative. So address the notion or the idea that a lot of people I know that are chronic procrastinators also have some, you know, um, guilt feelings and shame and uh, and they and they you know there there seems to be a spiraling circle to the emotion of all this that really impacts their their self esteem in a negative way. Do you find that to be true? Yes, very much so. The strongest uh, emotion or the strongest relation of any emotion to procrastination is guilt, and it relates very much to my colleague uh, Joel Anderson's definition of culpably unwarranted. We do feel culpable for our delay. And we blame others. We really impugn others with that word. You're such a procrastinator. So we do feel shame that we're letting other people down, that we're letting ourselves down, that we can't live up to our own obligations. And it's, it's very interesting to me because uh, back in 2010, I had a colleague, a little before that, actually, because we published a paper in 2010, a colleague who's done a lot of work on forgiveness. He and I were supervising a graduate student together, so we did a paper on forgiveness and procrastination. And I said to Michael, Michael Wall, a brilliant guy. I said, Michael, I think I know the answer here. It's going to be forgive and forget. If I forgive myself for procrastinating, it's just going to be more of the same. But in fact, we didn't find that at all. Eldon, we found that the people who forgave themselves were less likely to procrastinate in the future. I said, Michael, how do you make sense of that? He said, well, imagine you and Eldon had some transgression against each other. Well, for example, imagine I didn't show up today. What would be the motivation? Well, I'd want to avoid Eldon, and Eldon would want to avoid me. And what would happen if Eldon forgave you, Tim? Well, then that motivation would change to approach. He said, exactly, but with procrastination, the transgression is against the self, and there's your notion of shame and guilt, is transgression. But then when the forgiveness is offered, then there's a turning of the motivation. So really important message in there for the people you're talking about who feel this guilt and shame, that self-forgiveness, self-compassion is really crucial to being able to try again. That is a critical issue. You know, way back in the early 80s, we ran a tight double-blind study at uh, Utah State Prison. It was the first of its kind where we used forgiveness. And I remember the public safety commissioner objecting to the idea of utilizing forgiveness with the inmates. I forgive myself. I forgive all others. I, you know, I am forgiven. Uh, because isn't that just going to cause them uh, to repeat their crimes? And, and, of course, as you found that was exactly the opposite of what we found. We were actually able to interrupt the recidivity rates uh, with the group that we worked with. So that 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 is a a critical point uh, that most people just miss entirely. Okay, given the cost of procrastination, then why do folks procrastinate? They just oh, ignorant. You're, you're very good at this. <laughs> you're very good at asking the right questions, Elvin. So, you know, why do we don't do it? Well, you know, I've been talking to uh, Vinda. And I have two young children, and when they were, they're fairly, uh, they're 9 and 11 now. Mm-hmm. But when they were much younger, and they still say this now, I'll say it's time to make your bed, for example. I don't feel like it. I don't want to. And out of the mouths of babes, we would say, right, that's what happens with procrastination. 
It's about not feeling like doing something. So often when we try to portray uh, the brain, you were talking about the brain in the opening uh, segment of the show today, uh, we can portray it as a dual process system. So we've got this limbic system that evolutionarily is very old, very quick. It's the emotional center of the brain. And then we've got this prefrontal cortex that's more, it's slower in processing, it's laborious, it takes energy, and it's about control and inhibition and planfulness. So we often characterize the brain that way. And whether it be Freudian or any others, we've always had these kind of dueling processes. And it's still going on in most writings in psychology when when we think broadly although many things motivate us, and there's many neurochemicals, as you said. But taking it from there, what happens is we see a task, or we have a task in front of us, and we get back to that six-year-old. I don't feel like it. In the limbic system, that response is quick. And if it can even be quicker if it's something that's fearful. So I'm, I'm anxious when I see that task, or I'm, af- I'm afraid of failing. And so then, uh, what's our motivation? To escape, to avoid. So procrastination, another way to think of it, as I gave you a definition of it, but another definition would be an emotion-focused coping strategy. I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. negative emotions. These emotions are the first thing I experience because that limbic system is so quick. I experience these negative emotions, and I don't want them. We have that hedonic preference. We want to feel good now. As colleagues have said in the title of a paper, uh, Diane Tyson, Ellen Bratlosky, and Roy Baumeister, giving in to feel good, that we're, what procrastination is, we're trying to feel good now. Now, of course, the rest of the story is, well, maybe we need to be able to kick in the prefrontal cortex. And as I listened to your opening remarks about uh, meditation and research on meditation, I just wanted to jump in right there and say, I know some research at the University of Pittsburgh by Taran, who showed that after eight weeks of meditation, the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system associated with fight or flight, it actually right. decreases in size. The um, connections between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex is degraded. And so we're seeing these physiological responses and changes in relation to meditation that actually make it more likely that we won't get this amygdala hijack, this emotional response. So that's a fairly long answer to your question. So let me just sum it up by saying again, why do we do it when it ends up being so bad for us? Because in the short term, it feels good. Because in the short term, it gets rid of these negative emotions. And that's why it's such an interesting phenomenon for me, because it's so self-defeating. So you approach that chocolate cake when you've decided you're going to lose weight, and it's the amygdala that says, I'm just going to have to have one more bite. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a really good example, because there's a misregulation there. There's a belief that if I had that piece of chocolate cake, I would feel better. But in fact, it's not true. You end up feeling worse uh, for a number of reasons. Not not only the physiological effects of sugar, but how you're breaking your own promise to self because uh, you, you wanted to diet, you intended to diet. And so there's a lot of things going on there about the notion of the misregulation of emotion. So I think a big take-home message for all the listeners is that so often we think of procrastination as a time management problem, but it's not. You and I have... Um, somewhere over 80,000 seconds a day. We each have the same amount of time uh, each one of us does. It's not about managing our time. It's about managing our emotions. And that's where the story of procrastination lies. And one of the great advantages of meditation, as you point out, is it does seem to provide uh, additional um, cortical inhibitory abilities, if you will, because the research does show that it literally can expand the gray area of the brain, enlarge that, as well as rewire the brain in um, functionally appropriate ways that do lead to greater willpower, if willpower. Well, we'll take willpower up after the break. We've got a hard break coming up, uh, Professor. We're speaking with Professor Timothy Pitchell about his book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, procrastination.ca as Canada, procrastination.ca. Again, the book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, A Concise Guide to Strategies for Change. It's a small book, 
I understand it's been intentionally written that way because we might procrastinate if it were a larger book. But I'll tell you what, it is really a great read, and it's worth every one of you taking the time to read it. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest's work reviewing the procrastination puzzle. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. I should probably feed the cat. But right now we're playing Halo. Yolo. Headshot. You take that. You should probably call a doctor. Never mind, it's just a scratch. But your arm's gone. It's a flesh wound. Now come on, let's play some catch. I have organized my desktop. Now I'm all set up to work. Wait, that picture's kind of crooked and it's driving me berserk. Now I might as well just color code my pencils one by one. And my papers and my files, I can't work until it's done. We're procrastinating. All day I sit here waiting for just a And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Timothy Pitchell about his book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. Again, you can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, procrastination.ca. Rich website. Time to go there. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior, and definitely a new interest of mine. Now, our guest appeared to procrastinate, providing us his music today. And when at the last minute he provided a piece, well, not one member of my team could find it. Professor Pitchell informed us he didn't really have any music he preferred. When we searched, we found the performers, but not the song. So we decided to dedicate a special song to our guest, something fitting his work. As such, we just played some of Procrastination, the musical. What do you think, Professor? Did you really procrastinate getting us your music? And do you really not have any music that's special to you? Well, that's, those are all good questions. 
don't have lots of music that's special to me. I play music. I play almost every day. And But the question that Ravinda asked me is, well, so what's your favorite song? And I thought, I don't know what my favorite song is. And I thought about it a lot, and I talked to my wife about it, and I picked various artists. I said, but that's not my favorite. What's interesting about the question in relation to procrastination, it did lead to delay, and uncertainty is a very high correlate of procrastination. I don't know what to do. I don't do anything. And so in that sense, you could say I was procrastinating. At the same time, I thought about the reply and the need to get back to Ravinder and say, yep, this is my song. But I really couldn't make that decision. In the end, the song I chose was a song that I heard for the first time last June in the Yukon, almost in the Yukon-Alaska border, by a really interesting and creative band out of Toronto, uh, and that my son and I really enjoy playing in the truck together. It's a silly little ditty, but very uh, clever musically. So that's what I chose, and I'm sorry you couldn't find it, but I did enjoy the musical about procrastination. Well, you know, if you um, if you know where that is, if you happen to have an Earl, if it's on YouTube or someplace, send it to me, and we'll uh, we'll give it an encore next week. Okay. I'd love to hear the music, and and what's more, I'm compiling, you know, uh, this information. I have the great opportunity of speaking to some of the brightest people on the planet, and um, and picking their minds about their favorite music. So, you know. I intend to compile a lot of this with with some interpretations as we go along. You'd be surprised. I mean, we have some people on the show that they tell us how love will cure everything, and then they tell us their favorite piece of music, and the lyrics are, you know, the world has done me wrong, my dog died, the train <laughs> ran over my... You know, it's crazy the amount of self-disclosure you sometimes can get as well. Well, I was tempted to pick Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, because Leonard Cohen's a, a, a recently passed away, and he's a, a great Canadian, and Hallelujah, of course, is a wonderful song for lots of reasons. Amen. But then I thought it was kind of cliche at some level, too. So yeah, that's that's what my quandary was. There's a lot of good music I enjoy. They say I like to play music, but yeah, I'll have to send you that song because it, it's kind of fun, but it's, it's not serious by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it anyway. Uh, I thought this procrastination song, and I'd never heard of the procrastination musical. I thought my team did a great job coming up with that one. Very fitting the for the show. Yeah, it's very good. They've done a very good background. Stop your, you can start your classes next time with that music, huh? All right. I think I should. Uh, you believe that there's a reward pattern to procrastination. We were kind of touching on that, or it was implied that can eventually lead to habituation. Yeah, unpack that idea for us, will you? Habituation. And say, yeah, well, the problem with procrastination is most people call it, call it a habit. And so we end up avoiding before we even recognize that's what we're doing. And then it becomes a very difficult thing to beat. In fact, you know, most of the time I, I end up having to talk about strategies to, to defeat procrastination, and habituation is a good place to begin that because... Once you have a habit, it's, uh, it's very internally organized. It's, uh, you said it earlier about the way the brain works. What fires together, wires together. And pretty soon we have what we consider a habit. And when X happens, Y happens. And it just happens. You don't have to think about it. And so you think it's a rather unconscious thing. So if you're going to stop this procrastination habit, you have to erect new habits. It takes a lot of strategy. But it's so much simpler than most people think. So most of the time we make goal intentions. I'm going to take the simplest example, but it's a true one in my own life. I needed to start flossing my teeth. As I got older, I wasn't flossing my teeth and my gums weren't very happy. Despite some of the research we've been reading lately about how flossing is not important, my friends who are dentists tell me that's bunk, keep flossing my teeth. So I wasn't flossing my teeth. And even though I knew that it was good for me and I knew it didn't take very long, I couldn't seem to find myself doing it because I had all sorts of other habits in my life. So I, I simply went from a goal intention, the goal intention was to floss my teeth, to an implementation intention. And as you know, in the book, I write a lot about this, the work of Peter Galwitzer and his colleagues. An implementation intention is what it sounds like. How do I implement this idea? And it's very simple. It goes, when then? When this happens, then this happens. So for me, I already had a toothbrushing habit. I brushed my teeth every day. So all I said to myself is that when I pick up my toothbrush, I will put the floss on the counter. 
when I put down my toothbrush, I will pick up the floss. When that. And it truly was life-changing because now I floss my teeth all the time. Over time, it became uh, a habit. It took a long time to develop a habit. Some people like to say it takes 30 days to establish a habit. I think you're very lucky if that's true. It's taken me a couple of years to make it really habitual. And even then, when the nights when I'm tired, I can still fall into that. I don't feel like it. I don't want to and whine to myself. But instead, now, with that notion of an implementation intention, I turned it full circle and was able to say, yeah, and I was able to beat the procrastination habit because I truly was procrastinating on flossing my teeth. I'll say, oh, I'll feel more like it tomorrow, which is an interesting big lie. Do you ever suggest, uh, you know, triggers uh, in order to give rise to uh, following through on the implement, uh, implementation intention? I mean, I, I I think of, okay, flossing. If I had my floss sitting right there on the counter next to the sink, it, it would remind me. That would be a trigger to remind me. But do you ever encourage that kind of thing, or have you ever found that that is helpful? Well, that's part of the implementation intention because what it does is put the cue for the behavior in the environment. So in that sense, it is a trigger. The when, then. When I finish my cup of coffee, then I'm going to do something. So that the moment the coffee finishes, then that's the trigger for this behavior. Because otherwise, I rely on my internal processes, which are my habits, and they're leading me down the road I don't want to be on. So in that sense, yes, triggers are very important. And with the right. floss, well, I've got it sitting on my desk in front of me right now, but I don't feel like picking it up. So just because <laughs> it's there doesn't mean that I'm going to floss my teeth. In fact, there's a psychological theory called event segmentation theory. And basically, it has to do with the fact that in each part of our life, uh, we have these kind of scripts. Like when you walk into a restaurant, you have a script about how restaurants go, or if you go into a grocery store. And we have going to bed scripts and getting up scripts. And so you have to be careful that you, you use these triggers these, and these implementation intentions that fit rather organically into a, a script already. If I try to put my flossing, my teeth, or my new trigger into my shower routine, it might not work very well. And so on the one hand, I think, yeah, triggers, things in the environment are really important, but you have to be really strategic about where it is. And that's why I said I knew that I had this really good toothbrushing routine. And what I wanted to add was a new part of that toothbrushing routine. So that made sense then. When I put the toothbrush down, I will just pick the floss up. And notice I didn't say to myself, and I'm going to floss my teeth, because I find that really aversive, or used to. Now I don't feel clean unless I've done that. But I just said I'm going to pick it up. Now, of course, once it's in my hands, you know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Right. Uh, what do you tell someone uh, that says, yeah, I don't see myself as really procrastinating. I mean, I don't use my entire day maybe as efficiently as I could. But, you know, I, sometimes I need just a brain rest. I need just a break. Uh or, yeah. you know, I, I, I deserve a break. It is, a break is a part of our life. It, it's a quality of life. I mean, don't shouldn't that be part of what I plan as well? What do you tell somebody that procrastinates in that way? Well, I, I, I want to agree with that person wholeheartedly. I, I plan, I, I'm very careful to make time for recreation and breaks. Um, I think that I'm really down on breaks that just put me in a mindless state in front of a television set, which I gave up a long time ago, or... Uh, surfing the web and all the things like that because they're really lethargic and they don't really do much for me but we do have to have breaks and, and i'm not an advocate for being a machine and, and i'm not advocating for uber productivity either i'm speaking to people who say i become my own worst enemy when i know that i want to do something that's really my intention and i keep sabotaging that somehow that's where i talk about procrastination but uh, for sure for sure, I, for example, the creative process requires us to incubate, think. Uh, writing isn't just with your fingers on the keyboard. Writing happens with research. and Writing happens with careful thought. So delay, as I said, is really part of life, and we need delay, and it can be very sagacious delay, not necessarily needless and, and self-defeating. So, yeah, I think there's a big distinction there. And the interesting thing about procrastination is that it's very subjective. Only that person can really know whether or not they're they're trying to fool themselves, because self-deception is a big part of procrastination. Well, I think, you know, where I wanted to go was this. In, in the world that we live, there is always more to do. Um, mm-hmm. 
in our minds, at least, then there is time to do that. So prioritizing becomes critically important. But when you speak to somebody about procrastination, they invariably conflate that with the idea of overachieving, uh, the idea of somehow, um, you know, I need to get everything done that's in my head uh, that that I might could do if I just didn't procrastinate, if I just didn't take that break. That's where I wanted to go. Oh, I think yeah, that's, pretty... that's just as problematic as a, a, a bad procrastination. Like if we become compulsive that way. Interestingly, the major personality trait that's correlated with procrastination is conscientiousness, but negatively. The more conscientious you are, the more and that means the more dutiful, the more organized, the more self-disciplined. Not surprisingly, the less you procrastinate. So you might say that's a very good attribute to have. And certainly in the research on personality, we find that higher levels of conscientiousness predict better grades, better success at work. But if you just push that along the continuum, because all these personality traits are on a continuum, you get right. to com- compulsive behavior and workaholism. So there comes a point where you're crossing another line, which is really unhealthy as well. So no, I don't think we want to be driven think that would be a very bad place to put ourselves. Okay, sir. Explain to us what you call the downward counterfacting. Oh, ca- downward counterfactual. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got a colleague. At, uh, she's now at Sheffield University in England. Her name is Fuchsia Sirwa, and she did this interesting research. In fact, just she just published another paper that I read this, very early this morning about perfectionism. You might want to talk about, too, but downward counterfactual. So a counterfactual is something we tell ourselves that is, it sounds like the word, counter to what is factual. So imagine I had a car accident today, and uh, I could say, I could make an upward counterfactual, like if I hadn't been driving so quickly and not paying it, and I had paid more attention, I wouldn't have had that accident. The downward, and, and that doesn't make me feel very good, but I learned something. The downward counterfactual as well, at least nobody got hurt. I had the accident, but I'm looking for some some uh, silver lining to this very dark cloud. And what Fuchsia Sirwa found in her research was that procrastinators make more downward counterfactuals. And what downward counterfactuals have in common with what I've said about procrastination already is that downward counterfactuals make us feel good. At least nobody was killed. At least I have a good insurance policy. I'm looking for a silver lining. And so the, a downward counterfactual is a strategy that procrastinators can use. And it's also related a bit to self-handicapping. So someone could put something off to build in an excuse because they, and this happens a lot in the academic world, uh, you, you're worried about failing, so you study at the last minute. And if you do really well, well, you're a star. And if you do poorly, which is what you fear, you can say, well, you know, I only studied two hours last night. So you build in uh, an excuse for oneself. And so these downward counterfactuals, self-handicapping, they have a lot in common because they're meant to protect self-esteem and make us feel better. Okay, well, let's let's go ahead and take on the perfectionist then. Mm-hmm. Juxtapose it for us. Oh, that's a, yeah, because in 2007, one of my colleagues up in Canada here in Calgary <clears throat> published a meta-analysis about procrastination and said perfectionism is not related to procrastination. And for years now, other colleagues, including myself, have been saying that's simply not true. The reason that he found that is he tried to have a, a single approach to perfectionism, what in psychology we say unidimensional, one-dimensional. But in fact, there's a, a few flavors. Maybe that's a better way of putting out a perfectionist. And on the one hand, we could t- talk about the self-oriented perfectionist, someone who just does something well for themselves. In other language, people call that perfectionistic striving. On the other hand, there's a socially prescribed perfectionist. This is someone who's taken on the um, unrealistic evaluations and expectations of others. It's that, in that sense, it's socially prescribed. It's prescribed by others. And some people in another framework call this perfectionistic concern. And what we find is that the relation of these two kinds of perfectionism are opposite with procrastination. Those who are self-oriented or have perfectionistic striving, they actually procrastinate less because they're just trying to do a good job. They're actually a bit driven. It's the self, I mean, it's the um, socially prescribed or someone who has perfectionistic concerns that is more likely to procrastinate because they ruminate on what other people expect of them. They're worried about not living up to other standards. 
And so you can tell the difference in your own life. On the one hand, are you just trying to do a good job and, you, and you're really engaged and you're, uh, you're in, actually enjoying your work? Or does it feel like there's a little person on your shoulder, much like in a cartoon, saying, that's not good enough. And you're not going to be able to do it well enough. And if that second case is you, then it's more likely that you're the socially prescribed perfectionist, you have perfectionistic concerns, and that might be contributing to your procrastination. Interesting, interesting. You suggest that our most creative tasks should be done in the morning. Why? <laughs> well, it's not me that suggests it necessarily. Um, Victor Frankl, who I know you would know well, um, in his own autobiography, wrote about procrastination. And he even wrote in there that I, I've learned since his time in the concentration camps, of all things, and, and, and life in general. But, you know, you'd think a man who had such uh, extraordinary life and such extraordinary pain would have other things to write about besides procrastination. But he included in his own autobiography, and he, he said he learned to do the tough stuff first thing in the morning. And, and so it's not just me saying this. And Mark Twain is noted as saying, if your job is to eat a frog, then eat it first thing in the morning. And if your job is to eat two frogs, then eat the biggest one first. And so the wisdom in, in these perspectives is also something we see in research, that willpower seems to be a limited resource. Notwithstanding some of the criticism that the ego depletion research has taken recently, I think we all have had the experience of knowing that by the end of the day, we're pretty empty. In fact, here where I am in Ottawa, if I'm well east of you, it's going on 5 p.m. This is the time of day I'm making dinner for my children. They're tired. I'm tired. We're all running pretty thin. And so we know that we're much fresher uh, in, for most of us in the morning. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, some of us have different circadian rhythms. Some people are night owls and they do their best work at night. That's true for some people. But for most of us, we have to be strategic and tackle the toughest things first. So both research and common wisdom seem to be the ones telling us that we need to eat that frog first. So for most of us in the morning, just start it. That would be your cue, right? Not just do it, just start it. Yeah, that's a big difference. You know, Nike's slogan is just do it, but just do it freaks me out. Oh, I can't just do it. That's the problem. But you have to break it down. In fact, there's a whole productivity literature out there, and one of my favorites is David Allen. And David Allen writes about the fact that we don't do projects, we do actions. I really like that notion. And so I, my motto, as you know from the book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, is I say, just get started. But I've even taken that further in my own thinking, and I do this daily in my own life, because I don't always feel like what I have to do. There's lots of tasks that I think, oh, I'd rather poke my eyes out with a fork than do that. And I say, okay, what, what would be the next action if you were going to do that, but I know you don't want to? Well, the next action would be this. And I keep it as simple as possible, like open my laptop. I can do that. And really, we know that progress on a goal, no matter how small, fuels our well-being. And well-being fuels our motivation. So then I can ask the question again, okay, what's the next action? And you know where this story goes. Instead of a downward spiral of despair, now we're having an upward spiral of progress. And now I'm actually doing things, and that makes me feel good. So that getting started is crucial. And I always ask myself, what's the next action? Well, for our audience, you know, the book is chock-a-block full of uh, tips and uh, methods to um, turn your life into something other than wait until the time is right or it's too late. Okay, last week, our guest was Professor Larry Rosen, and his research basically insists that multitasking is an illusion, that, that we are unable to maintain focus across. What are your thoughts on multitasking? Well, I'd say it's a myth, too. I think we're drinking from the same Kool-Aid, perhaps. But that it's, we, we, the, the cognitive psychologists have shown us that we task switch so that it's not like we can do things in parallel. I can, I'm working on this task, and then I have to switch my attention over the other task. And depending on what study you read, between going from one task to the other and back again, it can take us like upwards of 15 seconds, which on the road will kill us. And that's why we're terrified of the fact that people are looking at their phones, of course. But in our day-to-day work, what we're doing is wasting a tremendous amount of time. And what's interesting is where we probably overlap is I think there's a lot of multitasking going on in the name of procrastination because I'm I'm working on my report. I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it. The six-year-old is alive and well in me. My limbic system's all lit up. And I say, you know, it'll only take me a minute. 
to update my Instagram or my Snapchat or my Facebook, or you pick your favorite social media. And that's true. It will only take a minute. But we're making a rational decision over an irrationally short period of time. So we think we're multitasking, and we say it'll only take a minute, and off we go to our social media. But a minute later, we face the same decision. And of course, since we've made it once, then we're more likely to make it again. And three hours later, we wonder why in the world are we watching videos of kittens? Because we never merely made that choice. All we ever made the choice is that it will only take a minute. But we did it over and over and over again. So in some ways, multitasking as a myth and multitasking in general runs face first into procrastination because people who want to avoid what they're doing will often then justify it by saying they're multitasking but end up in the deep end of avoidance. I think you call that cyber slacking. I like yeah. that term. You, yeah, but for you, you've been really reading the word. <laughs> Great term. Yeah. Well, Professor, we're out of time, and I want to thank you for your work. Uh, and for your willingness to share it with us. And once again, I, I got to tell everybody out there, uh, you know, in an hour's time, we didn't have near the opportunity to cover the great information that's in this book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle by Professor Timothy A. Pickle. Now, Pitchell. Now, you're going to spell his name if you look it up, P-Y-C-H-Y-L. That'll throw you, P-Y-C-H-Y-L. Timothy A. Pitchell, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. And again, Professor Pitchell, thank you for your willingness to share everything with us today. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>